0: From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Last month, police arrested two people accused of possessing extremist material. The arrests came at the same time as Australia's security agencies, a warning of an increase in far-right extremist activity. But now, Australian officials have introduced new terminology to talk about the threats we face, And are carefully avoiding the term right wing. Today, researcher at the Lowy Institute, Lydia Khalil, on what's behind this change and why the language we use to describe a threat matters. Lydia, last month there were two arrests that took place in South Australia.
1: What happened and why were you particularly interested in these arrests? Well, I track um, terrorism and extremism as part of my research work. And so we got news that there were these arrests that were happening in in South Australia.
2: Police have swooped on two men in the northern
1: suburbs, charging them with possessing extremist And they flagged that they had to do with some sort of Terrorism related arrests.
2: What I can say is obviously we were concerned, uh, we were briefed, it's a matter before the courts uh, at the
1: moment. What was curious to me is that they weren't very specific about any of the detail, which, okay, on the details and who it was exactly, sometimes agencies are a bit reticent, so that's no surprise. But what was surprising is that they didn't even make any reference to the type of group that these people were involved in, what type of terrorism or extremism. Uh, we were dealing with here, um, what potentially would motivate these individuals that they had
3: been, you know, clearly tracking for a long time. There's been an ongoing investigation, which, as you're aware, resulted in two men being arrested in relation to uh, violent extremism. But I can assure the community that the assessment of these two was that they did not pose a threat to the community at this point in time.
1: And also, um, you know, ASIO had flagged over the years that it's right-wing extremism caseload has shot up. So for me, I was curious, well, did it have to do with that? Or did it have to do with, you know, jihadist terrorism that we've been kind of grappling for a number of decades now or any other type of uh, group? As a researcher and analyst would do, you know, you kind of follow the news, you try to find out more information from the the press briefings, reach out to any contacts that you have. But it wasn't really until the actual uh, members of the the movement who were related to these arrests announced on Telegram.
0: Apparently at 5 o'clock this morning, The South Australian police force...
1: That they had happened, and we were able to piece together, okay, it's related to this group.
0: And the Australian Federal Police uh, raided the homes of about 15 of our uh, Adelaide members.
1: And the group was the National Socialist Network, um, which is a neo-Nazi group that's emerged out of Australia.
0: A harassment campaign against us and our members. They're not going to shake our morale. This only strengthens us.
1: (laughs) So essentially, we found out from the group itself rather than government, what those arrests were related to. Right, so
0: members of the National Socialist Network, which is a far-right organisation, were arrested. But what did police say about why they made those arrests?
1: So not much. They said, you know, they had been tracking these individuals, they were arrested, they had possession of material, and they said that they uh, arrested them for ideologically motivated violence. So to me, that could mean anything, and it was kind of a new term that ASIO has been using, so that also piqued my curiosity as well.
0: And can you tell me more about that term, ideologically
1: motivated violence? What does it mean in this context? Yeah, so this is, this is a new change.
2: Welcome to ASIO and welcome to the Ben Chifley Building.
1: So in March of this year, the Director General of ASIO, uh, Mike Burgess, he delivers the annual threat assessment.
2: Now visitors to this building are often surprised how normal our people look. The Hollywood version of spies and spy catchers is a long way from reality.
1: He's done this for a couple of years now, and when he delivered the threat assessment, he also made an announcement.
2: At ASIO, we are conscious the names and labels we use are important. Words matter. They can be very powerful in how you frame an issue and how they cause people to think about issues.
1: And that announcement centered around the terminology. And he said that ASIO will be changing the language that they use to describe violent threats, if violent extremist threats that they're dealing with.
2: So from today, we'll be changing the language we use when we talk about violent threats we counter.
1: So he now refers to, or the agency refers to, two broad categories.
2: Religiously motivated violent extremism and ideologically motivated violent extremism.
1: So these are two new terms that ASIO is now using to talk about extremism in Australia. And so what does this change
0: in language tell us about the way ASIO is approaching
2: tackling
1: extremism? ASIO is saying that they're making this change because a lot of times people are motivated by niche issues.
2: Put simply, the current labels are no longer fit for purpose. They no longer adequately describe the phenomenon we are seeing.
1: And a lot of the extremist groups and movements that we see today do not fall cleanly within what is commonly understood to be the left-right-wing political spectrum. That is ASIO's official rationale, and if you look at the director Burgess's speech, that's what he refers to.
2: As an example, thinking about the proliferation of violent groups ascribed to various political ideologies... It's unhelpful to characterise groups such as simply extreme left-wing or extreme right-wing. ASIO does not investigate people solely for their political beliefs.
1: And therefore, it's not useful to term something right-wing extremism. And I remember when I'm hearing that and I said, well, this does not make any kind of sense to me. As anyone, any student of extremist movements understands, the extremism can be motivated by various issues, by various dogmas, by various political persuasions, various religions. But at the end of the day, it's all ideological. Even jihadists who have an element of religion within their movements, it is an ideology that is informed by a religious belief. And so to separate the two into religiously motivated and ideologically motivated just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add any clarity. It doesn't help us to understand any of the concepts and to organize our thinking about these groups. And by way of comparison, you saw the same things in the United States. So under Trump, and actually even before that, there was a reluctance to talk about right-wing extremism when you talk about you know, militias or neo-Nazis or white supremacists or the way that right-wing extremism is commonly understood. But what the United States has done, instead of putting forward an overarching term, they've actually gotten a lot more specific. So they have seven different categories of different types of what we would normally associate with right-wing extremism. Whereas in the Australian context, they've just gone broad, and it's just very vague. And it really signals that there has been a lot of political influence in these decisions, that it was kind of a nod to political pressure from right-wing parties.
0: We'll be back in a moment.
2: Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For long-time editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel.
0: I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro-therapy on yeah. read this. Yeah, <laughs> if, that's, no. if that's what you're using writing for.
2: I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Lydia, we've seen members of a far-right organisation arrested recently, but there's been a reluctance from security agencies to really be explicit about their ideology. You're suggesting the reason for these changes could be political pressure, particularly
1: from the conservative side of politics. What sort of pressure? So when we talk about ranking extremism, it is diverse. And I should preface this by saying I have no evidence, of course, that there's a clear... Uh, link between this political pressure and ASIO's changes. So I want to put that out there that there's no direct evidence of that. But it's very, very hard to ignore because there has been a lot of pushback from right-leaning political parties across democracies who do not want the term right-wing at all associated with extremism because they feel like they have a sensitivity about how that relates to the right side of of politics.
3: Senator Feer of Wells. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Director General, I'm not sure if you saw some of the comments that I've made recently directly on this point. Yes, I see you nodding. Thank
1: you. You know, you've had senators in Australia here who've talked about
3: that. Uh, right is associated with conservatism in this country and there are many people of conservative uh, background who take exception to being um, charred uh, with the brush, and I think that you do understand that your comments, particularly when you refer to them solely as right-wing, has the potential to offend a lot of Australians.
1: Because they say that unfairly tarnishes a whole group of people who have a political persuasion as extremists.
3: And I think that Minister Dutton's comments, if I can put it up, mopping up after this, was very clear, and that is that... uh, you know it doesn't really matter what spectrum they're not they're on if it's extremism it's extremism and i think
1: but those same calls were being made by the muslim community for decades and we never changed our terms in the way that we talked about it we always said that it was islamist motivated violence and so the the question is well why now
0: right and so do you think there are other factors here for why the language being used by security agencies is changing that go beyond
1: possible political pressure. So this had a, has a bit of a context. So um, there have been kind of moves recently to change the terminology about how we speak about these type of extremist movements. Because look, what we're seeing is is a really different landscape to what we've uh, seen previously when it came to kind of terrorism and extremism. You know, unfortunately, in a lot of people's minds, when you think terrorism, you kind of automatically go back to the 9-11 days and you think jihadism, you know, Islamist type of violence and stuff, because that's kind of what we've been dealing with. But but that's by no means the only type of terrorist or extremist threat. And over the years, we've seen that that kind of, that, that landscape, that extremist landscape is really diversified over the years. So you can be talking about jihadist actors, neo-Nazis, anti-lockdown protesters, who advocate for violence, you know, uh, violent conspiracy theorists, incel movements, anti-women activists. There's a whole amalgam of, of the different things. And law enforcement and government, and, and and the researchers as well, you know, anyone who's been paying attention to these movements, there has been a struggle to identify and define and to parse out where they fit. And so there's a struggle kind of to identify what right-wing extremism exactly is. but. While the term right-wing extremism is slightly contested, there is a common understanding of what it is. And the, f- the thing with this type of extremism, normally what we would associate with right-wing extremism, broadly defined, is an anti-democratic opposition to equality. That's how I would term it, how a lot of different researchers and scholars have termed it, and how it's commonly understood within government, whatever form that takes, whether it's white supremacy, neo-Nazi, violent conspiracies, they all have that in common. And all of this is kind of a, look, it might seem kind of a bureaucratic point or an overly academic point. I mean, who cares really uh, about all this stuff? But I think it's important in terms of having clarity of understanding and thought and what we're dealing with.
0: So what are the real world consequences of not labeling a threat
1: specifically? Look, I mean, I kind of, um, I make a medical analogy to it. It's like, imagine if you go to the doctor and you say, oh, there's something wrong with your torso. Okay, well, that could mean that I have a heart condition or something's wrong with my intestines or my lungs or what exactly are we talking about here? And so to divide the body and its ailments in terms of general blocks like that, we would never accept that in terms of how we would look at identifying medical problems or categorizing those. Similarly to political and extremist movements and ideas. We need to know what it is we're dealing with in order to put resources to it, in order to potentially prescribe it, in order for society to understand the types of issues, potentially threats that our multicultural democratic society is dealing with. So you can have the public on board with you, understanding what, you know, the security agencies are doing, what government is doing to keep us safe and... It's also important to, you know, help people like me and researchers understand and parse out in order to explain and to advise about these different kinds of threats. So it has a a number of real practical implications. And the act of naming is really important as well. When you name something, you identify it. You identify where its place is in our society, in the spectrum it denotes priorities. It denotes what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. So this power of naming is really, really critical. And I think in ways, and a lot of ways, that uh, maybe we don't consciously absorb, but we all know to be true. Lydia, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. It was really great to talk to you. As a
0: a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read POST, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Also in the news today, one million people aged 40 to 49 in New South Wales are now able to register their interest to receive the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. The vaccinations will be available within weeks, according to the New South Wales government. The announcement came the same day the state government opened its first mass vaccination hub in Sydney. And the United States government has said it's deeply concerned about ongoing violence in East Jerusalem. More than 300 Palestinians were injured after Israeli police attacked protesters gathered near the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Israeli officials said 18 police officers sustained injuries. The protests were in response to attempts to evict several Palestinian families from their homes in East Jerusalem. Following international criticism, the Israeli government has announced it will delay the planned evictions. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.